Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So let's talk about what the Q factor is, right? So yeah. one of the things that the fact that each project has exactly the same probability of being the most successful of your life, uh, that actually led to a mathematical model of how creativity works. And the way this works really is that every project that you start is like a random number. You pick a random number from a hat and you and I have access to the same hat. So we pick a random number from that. And that could be one or six, throw a dice, right? Does It's like, it's totally random. And, and then you bring your knowledge and expertise on that. And that's your Q factor and turn that idea into product. If you're a scientist, it could be a paper. If you are a podcast host, it could be actually a, a, a show uh, or it could be a book if you're a writer, whatever that is. And then you look at the success or the impact of that product, like how many citations it got, how many people bought it and so on. And what we find is that the impact of that is nothing but that random number that you picked from the hat times the, your Q factor. That is, your Q factor is a number that characterizes your ability to take a random idea and to turn into an impactful product. Now, if you have a low Q factor, even if you throw a six with a dice, it's not going to be a high-impact product because you don't, have, you don't know what to do with that, right? So effectively, you're mm-hmm. not accelerating that idea very far. However, if you have a high Q factor, you could still pick a low number, random number, better, pick a bad idea and not to be very successful with it. But in the moment you hit across by chance through that great idea that the high random number times your high Q factor becomes a breakthrough. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Lazo, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I honestly don't even remember how I came across your book. I think it showed up uh, in an article that was recommended to me on Pocket Reader. And I was immediately drawn to the work because I thought, wow, here's a research-backed approach uh, to you know success. Because I think that you know the idea that there's a formula for this, I think, is something that we, we all love that idea. And yet, I think in a lot of ways, if there was a formula for exactly how to do it, everybody would be successful. Uh, but before we get into all of that, um, I would like to start by asking you where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Sure, absolutely. So I, I, I am Hungarian, but I grew up in a place called Transylvania, which does exist. Uh, it's part of Romania now, and it's partly Hungarian populated. And uh-huh. when I was growing up, actually, there was a hermetically close place because it was during the communism that you could not really leave the country uh, by, for any reasons. And so, so I grew up in a particular environment where I certainly taught, uh, and school, my schooling taught me that it's really school and education and everything is to kind of bring you success, right? Mm-hmm. Because at the end, 
uh, it's you need to be educated, you need to develop skills. And if you do have that, then actually that will result in success. So in a way, you know, the, the book, the formula that we're talking about was for me a reckoning uh, with with the fact that it's not so simple and and schooling and learning uh, it's necessarily but it is not sufficient to success but we'll go into more details on that later yeah absolutely so i wonder in a, a place uh you know where you grow up in a communist country what impact does that have on uh your ability to express opinions and express ideas and what if any what if any gets stifled by being in an environment like that well, I mean, you know, I've been long enough out that uh, that that I'm not any more. I don't believe that I'm very much stifled with that because I was really socialized professionally in the U.S. I, I arrived here when I started graduate school, but it does have an imprint. And I tend to think I want to first think about the positive part, right, which is a reference system. And mm-hmm. that, uh, that uh, you know, having had those experiences, it gives me a perspective on the American both educational system and way of life that is, uh, uh, that is probably not common. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a simple example to say, <clears throat> I find it difficult the many choices we have in the U.S., right? When I grew up, there was one butter on the shelf and there was one car, if you could get one, right? One type of car, the Romanian Dacia. And so, like, uh, you know, there was one school I could go to high school, and there was really one or two universities that I could choose to go to to study further. So, so there wasn't much choice in the uh, once you kind of decided what you want to do. And mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, you know, that and being a scientist, I find it a little bit overwhelming the the you know the abundance of offering at every level from educational to uh, professional to all the way to the materials that the Western world offers that obviously I didn't have access to. Yeah. So I, I know from reading the book that you're a parent as well. And I, this is something I always wonder about immigrant parents, just because I grew up with immigrant parents. And for the longest time, I thought, you know, you guys have this, you know, cookie cutter version of what we're supposed to do, you know, go to school, become a doctor, lawyer, engineer. Uh <laughs> particularly because we're Indian, and that's just kind of the narrative. And I wonder, as an immigrant who has come from this background, who had limited choices, and somebody who is also an educator, uh, what is the the narrative that you've passed on to your own children about making choices about their life, their education, and their career? Well, I mean, I don't think the narrative has significantly changed, because if anything, what has happened in the U.S. society that it became to some degree, very meritocratic and technocratic, right? Uh, and of course, we can talk a lot about that, many aspects of that. But virtually, we arrive to the society that that there is, there's a major differences between the different strata of the society. And the biggest driver, driving force of those differences is really knowledge and access to knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, and if anything, that what I brought with me is kind of an appreciating of novel, uh, appreciation for knowledge, and uh, and so so you know, a kind of my driving force as many other many immigrants' parents is right is that you know that's the most important aspect, and that's where you have to invest both intellectually and materially, materially to kind of bring that knowledge to your children, and mm-hmm. and you know, and that you know, you know. One advantage of a communist society, or or in general, the more European society, is that it has much more mobility between the different strata. So you have actually a real chance to kind of moving from the bottom to the top. 
U.S., those type of movement has been frozen out in the last 20, 40 years. So, so mm-hmm. in a way, uh, it's, I think it's very, very important as a parent, as an educator, or for any parent in metaphor, that to kind of pay attention to make sure that your children have that opportunity for education and to move up, because it's mm-hmm. very difficult these days. Yeah. So I think it's, it's interesting that you bring up the ability to have mobility between social stratas. And, and you know, I, I think about this from the standpoint of somebody who's had two degrees, one from an elite school like Berkeley and an MBA from Pepperdine. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching uh, just a few minutes of this uh, documentary called The Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. And he actually did an entire segment on student loan debt. And he said that, think about it this way. He said, imagine that you're running a race in the Olympics and somebody comes up before the starting gate and shoots you in the foot. He's like, that's effectively what we do to students when we hamper them with all this debt. So you as an educator, I, I wonder how you you resolve that that paradox of the fact that, yes, education is as necessary in terms of, you know, equipping us, uh, you know, and then when you have access to knowledge like we've never had before because of the Internet, because of technology, uh, how do you think about the role that formal education and the structure of formal education plays in our lives? I mean, formal education is essential, actually, and and I don't think you know. No, despite of all the news about the demise of the demise of the formal education, I don't think it's going to go anytime soon away. So we have to kind of uh, uh, be, be dealing with that. Also, that there are actually, and we'll we'll probably talk about it. You know, like different schools offer different things, and what does the school offer is a very interesting question when it comes to long term success. Uh, there are there are two different ways. First of all, as an educator, I think it's heartbreaking the fact that there is this that, that many Americans do not have access to education, and and that's kind of almost decided for them at birth. That's number one, and mm-hmm. I you know like that's a reference frame that I'm missing from Europe because that's much there's much more mobility there. The, as a parent, the way I resolve that is that I actually have a very firm conviction that I got a free education. And my children should have a free education, meaning that I will not load them with debt, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so it's I feel like it's my responsibility as a parent to kind of launch them so that they can live their potential. Now, of course, I can say so because I can afford the schooling, right? And many of these kids are taking up the loan not because their parents think otherwise, but because they just can't afford it, right? So so that we're not yeah. going to resolve that anytime soon, not on this show and not through the formula. Yeah. Well, do you think that this is something I wonder is that like, is there a point at which the student loan debt crisis causes just a roof to cave in kind of the way, uh, you know, the, uh, the housing crisis did? Because in my mind, I'm like, how long can you keep giving money out and not having it come back in until there's systemic consequences? Yes. I mean, I think if, uh, you know, like there are some, 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 some people who kind of insist that that will be the next major crisis in the American ec- uh, economy. I'm not an economist, mm. so I can't really give you a, a, a very precise answer on that. Mm. Not that anyone could. Yeah. Um, well, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about how you kind of, you know, got to this point and, and, you know, what has been the, the trajectory of your career that has led to this book? Mm-hmm. 
Sure. So, so I'm actually a data scientist, and more precisely, I'm a network scientist, and which meant that I spent kind of the last 20 years uh, uh, trying to understand large data sets and the dependence between the data points. Like we studied the World Wide Web, we were the first to study the World Wide Web as a network. My lab, actually, uh, uh, at Harvard Medical School, is focusing a lot on the genetic networks within the cells and how the, the that lead the breakdown of that network leads to human disease. Mm -hmm. But also part of my lab is focusing on social networks and with the availability of data on science and uh, kind of scientific publications and so on, about five or eight years ago, we kind of started thinking that, well, maybe this professional networks, like how scientists collaborate with each other, how they interact with each other, may actually determine their success as a scientist. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a spark. We said, well, given that we know so much about networks, given, and given the fact that the data is increasingly available to describe how science has evolved, maybe we can build on the knowledge and kind of predict scientific success. So that was the motivation why we went down on that path. But then we soon realized that really, when we talk about success, it's really network are an integral part of the story, but not the only one. Mm -hmm. And then uh, step by step, we had to kind of go and revise both the way we think about uh, uh, success, as well as the vocabulary we use to speak about it, as well as kind of rethink about what is the data and the approach that we take uh, to kind of really quantify success. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the formula is about. And what I should just say in the, uh, as, a, as a, pr a preliminary thing is that, you know, fabulous books have been written about success. Uh, but some of them are actually written by very successful people who have kind of recounting their own trajectory. Mm -hmm. uh, others were written by people by people who kind of summarize the trajectory of a group of successful individuals and distill information for uh, uh, that you know could, that is very inspiring. Mm -hmm. The problem I have with these approaches is that I'm very inspired by them, but they're missing the placebo effect or the control study. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that they only look at successful individuals and they're not looking at the individuals who did not succeed. And we know from medicine, the scenario that I've worked on, that if you don't have a placebo, you don't know whether the drug works. For example, if you look at 100 super successful individuals in the business sphere and you, conclude, and you notice that all of them actually wake up, start working at 6 a.m., it's tempting to actually conclude that getting up at 6 a.m. is the secret of success. Yeah. But then you look around and you find 10 million people who do get up at 6 a.m. and they don't achieve the success at the level that uh, your, uh, your, your sample did. And then you say, what's wrong with that? Mm -hmm. Well, because getting up at 6 a.m. may not be the driving force for success. It may be just one of the signatures of the many uh, of success, what we call the correlates. Mm -hmm. So therefore, when I wrote the book, as well as the research we did behind that, we were careful of not just to look at success, but to also look at the lack of success. So we got access to massive data sets that describes not just the Nobel Prize winners in science, but all sciences that all scientists that have written papers since 1900 till today, when we look at success in art, we're not just looking at the Van Goghs and the Andy Warhols, 
but we're looking at every single artist that exhibited in the last 40 years. So we have the failures together with successes. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really the spirit in which we approach as a data problem, the success story. Wow. So, so many questions come to that. So we will actually get into the the five laws that you, you wrote about in the book. But one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I wrote a post about this recently, and it was titled the blatantly obvious variable that throws off every formula for success, which is the person, right? Because I can take somebody through one of our online courses, and they will get drastically different results just because of how they're built. Like somebody could literally replicate everything that I do in my life. Another example, right? Two kids raised in the same household. My sister and I both went to Berkeley, same parents. She kicked ass, got into med school. I nearly failed out of Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, as somebody who has written a book called The Formula, how do you think about that sort of variability? Because that to me is the, the, the sort of critical variable that throws off every formula. Uh, oh, absolutely. I think a lot about that. And that's chapter 10 in the formula, uh, the fifth law, and we call it the Q factor. Okay. We must acknowledge that some of us, some people have talents and others don't for a certain profession, right? And we're able to quantify in cases where we have enough data, what's your aptitude to really kind of kick ass in that particular uh, profession, right? So mm-hmm. this is something that is quantifiable if the data is there. And we, I think we did a, uh, we were successful in the science space and we're now extending that idea to other areas as well. So okay. yes, so we'll, we'll, there are differences right. between us. That is quantifiable. You, you, you cannot be at the same time a fabulous doctor and a painter and the best runner in the world, right? <laughs> and and uh, so not only that, it's not only simply a lack of time, but it's also an aptitude. And part of the success story is to find that, find that, mm-hmm. that profession or vocation for which your Q factor is maximal. And we'll talk about what the Q factor is. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that. So let's let's actually get into the the five laws. I mean, I remember the, the first one you said, you know, performance drives success, but when performance can't be measured, networks drive success. And you say that, you know, we never work in isolation, even when we think we do. Our collective definition of success requires to think about the ways that our work impacts others. If we want to bring the world up there nearer to our doorsteps, we need to find the hubs that can accelerate our trajectories and reach out to them. Uh how do you do that? And then I think the other thing that really struck me was you said just the the fact that a kid applied to an elite college, even if they didn't get in, actually made them more likely to succeed, which I thought was fascinating. This was this was meant to be one question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, my goodness. All right. So let's just step back a little bit and talk about how do we define success. Uh, uh, and so obviously we learn and we've been told that performance leads to success. And, you know, when it comes to schooling and exercise and practice is all about enhancing your performance. And, and this is how, as we said earlier, this is how I really approach my life. I have to be really good at what I do because that will make me successful. What's the difference? And the way we define actually the difference between them is that performance is something that you do. How fast you run, what radio shows you kind of uh, uh, do, uh, what kind of paintings you paint. Success, however, is what the community sees, acknowledges from that performance, and eventually how do they reward you for that. And the distinct, so in other words, the, your performance is about you, but your success is about us us being the community who can notice that uh, uh, what you are doing. And there are given that, always success is a 
collective measure that the community provides to you. And there are many, many measures of success. Could be how many people listen to your show. Could be uh, how much money a business make, uh, businessman max, makes or how big the company that he or she funded and how what's our revenues. Could be simply how many citations a scientist paper get or could be who exhibited what institutions and artists work and so on. So there's not a single measure of success, but what is common between the multiple measures of success is that it's not, not decided by the individual, but decided by the community. I'm mm -hmm. listening to your show and therefore I'm adding to your success. I'm buying your art and therefore I'm adding to your success. I'm listening to your music. I'm reading your research paper and so on. Mm -hmm. So, so once you have this distinction, then the question is how and when does performance lead to success? And well, if you are a runner, the question is simple, right? The faster you run, the more successful you are as a runner. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, there is no ambiguity about that relationship. The problem really comes in areas where we do not have a chronometer. And the bad news is that most of us spend our life in areas where there is not a single chronometer to tell us how well we're doing what we're doing, right? How do you objectively measure, if you don't factor in the number of listeners, how good your show is? Mm -hmm. How do you decide whether this paper is revolutionary or not without looking at the community's response to that, right? How do you decide whether the song is really good or not if you are ignoring how many people listen to it? So, so most of us actually are really working in areas where we don't have a chronometer or we have no way of truly measuring our performance. That is not to say that we cannot distinguish a weak from a strong one that you don't have to be an expert to do that, but it's very difficult to measure, distinguish the strong from strong one. So mm -hmm. now when performance is not measurable, then the question, what determines the success if it's not your performance? And that's where the networks come in. And the best mm -hmm. example probably for this is art, right? I have a glass of water in front of me as I'm speaking to you. And is this really a glass of water worth a buck or maybe less? Or is this really a million dollar artwork? Well, right now it's a glass of water because it's in my office. But if you would see the same glass of water exhibited in MoMA, it would be a completely different discussion you would have about that, right? So the value of art, in other terms, is really not determined by the intrinsic value of the object itself, but by almost invisible networks who kind of dedicate the glass of water as art. That is, who touched it, who put it there, where it is at that moment, what other institutions have exhibited it before, and what did the artist do before in his or her career or after that particular artwork, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so just looking at the object itself in isolation from all of these factors, you're unable to decide, first of all, whether it's art or not, and, and what is this valuation. And we ended up kind of going after this question by analyzing the artistic career of uh, half a million artists all over the world and where they exhibited in the last 40 years through a very valuable data set that was provided to us by an institution. And, and what we showed in that case, that I can map out this invisible network between the institutions by simply looking how this, the artists move from one institution to another one in their exhibits, that where was Andy Warhol this exhibited today, 
and where he will be exhibited tomorrow. And that kind of connects the institutions to me, uh, uh, for me, and creates a network. And that network itself is very, very predictive what will be your artistic career. That if on your network you give me the five exhibits that you had before as an artist, I can fast forward your, your career 20 years into the future and tell you how successful will you be as an artist. Why is that? Because where you are in that network determines the community's valuation of you know, what your art is perceived to be worth and determines your future trajectory because only along the links of this network from institution to institution, your art can travel. And because you don't have a measurable performance that can mess that story up. So once, you, once I place your network, I can predict your future. So step back. What we in general are finding is that in areas where performance is not measurable, it's the network that really takes over. And, 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 and here we're not talking about mindless networking to just go out and know as many people as possible, but talking about precisely understanding those invisible networks that create valuation or value or success in your particular profession. And each area is very different. In the, in the case of uh, art, we were able to uh, kind of uncover that network and extract the predictive power. Because if you are in business, maybe a completely different type of network. And we just started a project in my lab to map that out. So if you are an entrepreneur, find out how does performance and the uh, invisible or uh, networks really affect your ability to start a company that will be successful. And we think we're going to do a good progress on that because the data is becoming available. And the same concepts we saw in art and other areas apply here as well. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because as, as you're describing that, I couldn't help but think about kind of the the way that we've built Unmistakable Creative because having interviewed 700 people, like I've made myself a hub with all these spokes to it. And I wonder, you know, at times what role that has actually played in me, you know, getting to the point where I get to write books and give speeches and do all that stuff. And I'm sure it played a very important role. And it may have been, and you may have intuitively stumbled across the right network that your talents can be expressed in the best way, right? So if you would have said, for example, that, oh, I interviewed these 100 very successful entrepreneurs, and now I went and started a company, mm, maybe that, that's one way to think about it. Or, or, or then you went actually and opened an art gallery. I'm not so sure that was the right network information you gained from it, right? Yeah. But if you say, hey, now I'm going to write a book and I'm going to actually communicate about my findings, then, then you probably kind of tap yourself into the right network for the problem that you're dealing with. Yeah. So one one thing I wonder about this, you know, we were talking about measurement, and I remember we were talking to, to you know my friend Cal Newport, and he said you know d- metrics are kind of a double edged sword, right? Because mm-hmm. if you have metrics, inevitably what that's going to lead to is comparison, because there's always somebody who's either behind you or ahead of you. There's always somebody who has sold more books, has more money, and there's always somebody who has less. How do you navigate that dynamic without losing your mind? Well, it is certainly true, uh, but that's because we have too few metrics and they're too tailored to some big problems, right? So, and well, I actually believe in diversity, that, that we can all have kind of space in the world that maybe is not captured by the big metrics, but is still very valuable. So let me give a specific one. You know, we're in America. In America, there's one big metric that really matters, which is money, right? 
Well, I'm a scientist. I do need money to actually live and to do my science. But my measure of success is not money, right? And if you actually start ranking people based on their net worth or income, it doesn't bother me at all or doesn't affect my actions because that's not the way I think about it, uh, where, where my impact should be. Now, if you say, well, maybe we should actually rank people by citations and so on, then you would say, okay, yeah, that's kind of getting closer to what I do. But I not only do science, I also write books, I also educate, uh, and uh, I also come up with ideas that don't turn into papers but turn into some other uh, uh, you know, outputs and so on. So there's not a single matrix that can really define my life. And if anything that we learned, I think, in the last 20, 30 years is that the world became so diversified that there are no single metrics that can capture the whole thing. So I don't think that most people would actually go depressed if they are saying, hey, I'm not really uh, on the list of the 100 richest person. We have other things mm. to do in our life. So, so I actually think that we have too few metrics and the metrics are too, too crude. And, uh, and you know, when people try to measure themselves with those crude metrics, uh, you know, it's not that they get depressed. It's mostly like, this is just not relevant for me. Mm, yeah. So let's get into this idea of, of law number two, which you said, you know, performance is bounded, but success is unbounded. And you said, understanding the inherent randomness in every selection, we can often better appreciate how success is often a numbers game. If you want to win competitions, you enter a slew of them. If you want to get a job, you must send out plenty of resumes. If you want a starring role, you need to step up for audition after audition. You can't control whether you're first or last to take the stage, but just as you need to buy multiple tickets to widen your odds of winning the lottery, you're far more likely to score a preferred shot on the roster if you keep showing up. Wow. Uh, and that to me was, you know, one of those things that really struck me because, you know, I, I honestly, I have jokingly said, I'm like, you know, I, 98% of what I write is complete crap. I just write a lot. Hence the reason I've been able to get to the point where I could write a book. Yes. So indeed this kind of, uh, it's really, it's all comes from the fact that performance is bounded. And let's talk about what that means. Right. So as we said, performance is something that we do, you do as an individual. So that's not about the community. And, and every time we're able to measure performance, we find that there are no major differences between the individuals who are trying to perform in the same, uh, same space. What do I mean by that? So think about runners again. Usain Bolt is clearly the fastest man on earth, right? No one is questioning that. But when you actually look at his performance as a runner, it turns out that he's only a pers 1% better uh, uh, in terms of speed than the loser of the Olympics, right? And not only that he's only just slightly better than the next one on the list, but you know, he's not running 10, 10 times faster than I do, and even though I'm not a good runner at all. Right. So so what we see in case so what we see that when it comes to the speed that people run with, healthy people run with, it's really bounded in a relatively small region, a small range, of which obviously you saying both at the top, but there are not the huge differences between the different competitors or individuals. And this is not unique to speed. In most areas, when it comes to human performance, things that you do, it turns out to be very bounded, that there are no huge differences between the individuals. Now, that has a consequence. Mathematically, we call that these distributions are bounded or exponential distributions. And one of the consequences is that when you look at the top, the top performance, those are mathematically bound to be very close 
virtually indistinguishable unless you have very, very accurate measures of performance. So as a result, in areas where we lack a, lack a chronometer, it's difficult to really distinguish the top performance. And a beautiful example is music. And for example, I talk in the formula about the Queen Elizabeth competition, which is really the star maker in classical music since 1937. And this is a competition that kind of happens every two or three years, depending on uh, instrument and and. What they try to do is to find the best violinist or the best pianist, and whoever wins that competition becomes overnight a star because the major concert halls will open their doors, it will be recorded, and so on. And it's it's a very well put together competition, making sure that no one has an unfair advantage about Every time about 100 people start, they are narrowed down to 12 finalists. And then the 12 finalists get to perform over six days, two per day, in a randomly chosen order, so no one has an advantage. And most important, they all play in the same piano or violin concerto that was composed specifically for that competition. So you don't have an unfair advantage by knowing the piece ahead of time. And everybody gets it exactly one week before, and the grades are assigned on the spot, so that would be no undue influence and so on. Despite all of these cautionary notes, actually, when you look at at the record of the competition since 1937, there are some really odd things that pop up. The first is that no one has ever won the competition who played on the first day, which is kind of odd because the, the order is randomly chosen. So it could very well be that the, the best pianist is kind of randomly picked to be the first one to open the competition. And, and I think there's only one winner that won uh, who played on day two. All the winners really come from the day kind of four, five, six, towards the end of the competition. Not only that, if you are actually the second on the same day, you have about two. You get you get ranked about two spots higher on average than if you are the first the same day. So, so the later you play, even in terms of the day as well as during the week, the more chances you will have that you win the competition. Now, how is that possible? Well, the answer is very simple. First of all, the jury, who is made of the top music experts in the world has this almost impossible task to decide who is the best pianist among the 12 best pianists in the world in their age generation. These guys are all fabulous. And honestly, they cannot distinguish them, right? So, be, And when they are unable to measure their performance in an objective way to say, okay, this is a better player than the other one, they start using other mechanisms to arrive to a winner that the one that you actually listened last, you remember better than the one that you actually listened earlier. The one that you listened last, you have a better reference frame of how should he or she sound for because your ears got trained on the first few ones. And therefore, the recency effect takes over. And the recency effect is not only in classical music. You know, if you look at the, uh, the, the skating competition, uh, you will always find that the figure skating competitions, that the later someone plays, the higher chances they have winning. And, you know, if you want to become a judge in Spain, you can take an exam from Monday to Friday. If you're chosen to, be take, to take the exam on Monday, you have 40% chance of becoming a judge 
on Friday, you have 60% chance of becoming a judge. So at the end, what happens in this case is that, you know, on the top, performance is indistinguishable, and we are humans. We must come to a decision, and therefore, we end up replacing the performance with other characteristics. And let me just share a final anecdote that I really loved in this case. <clears throat> so when I when the formula was kind of on the market, about seven publishers wanted to publish it, so we had a competition between them. Part of the competition is that we interviewed each publisher and asking the editors why they want this book. And one of the editors said, you know, the reason I really want to publish this book is because it helped me understand the puzzle that I've been wondering about for several years. He said, every year I actually interview about five to six candidates for for an internship in the publishing house where I work. And I do not understand why, but always the best candidate is the last to come for an interview. (laughs) (laughs) So, and, you know, we had a long discussion and of course the, the candidates are completely random in the order they come, but by the time he arrives to the last interview, he's, he's became the best to ask the right questions. He knows what he wants from that person. And when he asks the right questions, he gets the right answer. And for that reason, I always tell my students, oh, you got an interview for so-and-so job. That means that you have the performance to get the job. But you, in order to nail it, find out when the decision is made and find every excuse possible to postpone your interview till the last moment. <laughs> Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I remember reading that. I thought, holy shit, that's amazing. Like, uh, yeah, I, I, I keep even wonder. I'm kind of like, wow, you could apply that to your dating life. If some girl has just broken up with somebody, make sure you're not the first guy she goes out on a date with after a breakup. Yeah, we don't have data for that, but we could try. <laughs> well, you know, I'd be curious if you, if you did. Uh, so, you know, the thing you mentioned is that, the, you know, the, the third law was that previous success times fitness equals future success. And this is interesting to me because um, as an author who's written multiple books, one of the, the things that I saw immediately with my second book was that it outsold the first book in like a quarter of the time. Like it's already reached as many copies sold as it, you know, as my previous book did in two years. Mm -hmm. So yeah. how does this all happen? Like what are the oh, signs behind this? Absolutely. So, so, so this, there, one of the key elements of the, of this law is that success breeds success. That is, the more you have, the more you will get next time around that. And, and in, partly because you have the visibility, but this is something that we actually discovered 20 years ago when we looked at the World Wide Web and we tried to quant explain in a quantitative terms, why do we have such a highly connected web pages like Google and Facebook that, you know, hundreds of millions of other web pages linked to it? And what's the mechanism behind that? And what we realize is that there is what we call preferential attachment. That is, the more links you have on the web as a website, the more you will get. And it turned out this to be a very generous statement. The more citations your paper have, the more they will get. The more listeners you have, the more you will get in the future. Now, you would say, okay, that's fine, but this could be simply explained by talent or quality, right? Because maybe those, the Google, the reason why it gets uh, Facebook so many links is because they're really very, very good at what they do, right? And therefore, the one who collect many links are better than those who collect fewer. And it's not the rich gets richer, but the talented gets richer. So that's where actually the data comes in that people who did very nice control experiments to show that is not that simple. And my favorite experiment was done by Arnold von Nisch, who's a sociologist who now lives in Holland. And he actually went to Wikipedia and identified the 200 most active editors on Wikipedia by simply how many edits they did per day and what was their contributions to the site. And then he grouped them into two groups where the people were randomly placed in group one or group two. And 
So he had two identical pool of editors. What was common between them, they were all fabulous editors, very, very active in Wikipedia. And otherwise, there was no distinction between them because it was randomly chosen who goes into group one or group two on this top 200 list. What he did next is that he took one group one and gave them a award. Award means that you, on Wikipedia, you can award uh, each editor what, with what we call a bar star for their contributions to Wikipedia. And so half the group one, every member got a barn star. Group two, no member got a barn star, even though they were just as good as the group one. And then he watched what happened, you know, in the coming months. And what he saw three months later is that the group who did not get an award, the 100 editors, in that three-month period got three barn stars which means that people have rewarded them for their exceptional performance because they were really good. But the group that he rewarded got 12 more awards. So so now look at this. There is no difference between the two groups, except one of them got an award, the other one didn't. And the one who got are way, getting way more awards in the future than one who didn't. And this mm. is purely kind of rich gets richer phenomena in action. You know, you're much more likely to give an award to someone that you trust that it deserves that. And how do you trust that the person deserves that? Well, when you cannot objectively see the performance, will you look at who else gave an award to them and whether you trust that decision or not? So in order to get an award, you have to become awardable. That is (laughs) that in order to become successful, you have to become successful in the first place. So that's that's what we call success beats success. And there's even a particular formula to say, you know, Typically, success goes linearly with the previous success that you acquired. So your 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 sales are proportional to how many books you sold in the few in the past when it comes to books. But yeah. of course, there's still differences between us. So that quality and talent doesn't matter in this story, and that's why the law actually at the end says is previous time success times fitness is your future success. And let me give you an example of a book. Right. So you have sold you know, one book that has sold very well and then your second book comes out and all your readers who read you before, who like what you wrote, may get to the second book and say, you know, I really don't like that. The first one maybe was about ice cream and this one is about football and I'm really not a football guy, right? And by the way, I read the book and it's not really fitting with my interest. So that means that your sec- that, that you know, each of your book or each of the products that you put out have a fitness parameter you could think of fitness as being the intrinsic value of that uh, object or that product, but it's really not something about the object itself, but about the community's perception of how good that is. And we can measure that in, in, in many systems. And effectively, the higher the fitness, the faster the growth, the faster the, uh, the growth of the success. So at mm-hmm. the end, success leads to success, but the growth, growth rate of that curve is really determined by the intrinsic value of uh, the, of that particular book. But they're yeah. both necessarily, and I think I offer a couple of examples to show how both of them are necessary. One of them, of course, is the is the Harry Rollins book. Uh, uh, when she wrote actually a book under uh, a pseudonym, not releasing that actually was her book, a detective story, and, and actually didn't release, no one noticed, about 500 copies were sold altogether of the book. And and that was a situation where the book may have had actually 
good intrinsic fitness and the reviews were very, very positive, but the author lacked previous success. And in the moment, mm-hmm. somebody figured out that actually the real author is, uh, uh, is Roland, then suddenly yeah. became overnight a bestseller. <laughs> so, so, so really, previous success matters because that brings attention to the product. But mm-hmm. fitness matters because once I encounter the product, I evaluate it by reading the book, listening to music, listening to the show, and then that evaluation determines whether I'm going to tell others to listen to it or buy it, right? Yeah. So, And they together are the factors that determine the future success. That's the third law of the formula. Wow. <laughs> All right. So the fourth law you say is while team success reverse di- requires diversity and balance, a single individual will receive credit for the group's achievement, yet you also say... When we handpick for talent, prioritizing individual accomplishment over achievement, we rarely get the results that we hope for. So how do you resolve those two paradoxes? So the fourth law really is indeed about teams, right? And why do we care about teams? We care about teams because the world got really complex in the last decades, and there is almost nothing that we can achieve alone. We need to rely on others to kind of achieve our dreams. And this is particularly true in science, where until the 1990s, the highest impact research came out from single authors. But since the 1990s, the highest impact work is always associated with teams, two or more collaborators working together to make that discovery. So so when it comes to teams, and it's unavoidable that we have to participate in teams, two questions come up. How do you form the right team, number one? And the second one is that once you're part of a team, and let's say the team is successful, how do you get credit for the team's work when so many of you have contributed to that idea or the product? So let's talk about the first one. How do you form the right team? And this is actually part of a long line of research that is called team science that quite a number of economists and uh, business researchers as well as scientists are working on. And there are a couple of clean results in that space. One of them is actually has to do with how how does a team with good performance look like? What does it mean to have a team with good performance? It's when the team's goal is to achieve something that we know it's achievable but is difficult, right? Is uh, is to kind of, uh, you know, uh, generate a, a supply chain. We know it's possible, but it's going to be difficult. Get to a difficult terrain, a car through, yeah, and so on. And what the research actually shows is that when it comes to teams that are really aimed for performance, then the 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 what is key is that that not necessary to have lots of geniuses on the team. Actually, that's not good for the team. So the individual IQ and the individual performance of the team members is not a factor. Uh, uh, w- nor is the education level of the individual team factor uh, team members. What really matters is diversity, to have many different type of people together. Second, what is key is the ability to pay attention to each other. That is that the team to work horizontally and no one to kind of dominate the discussion. And the third factor is uh, is uh, is effectively uh, it's it's important to have women in the team. Mm-hmm. Now, so that's for performance-oriented teams. Yeah. However, 
what happens when you try to have a team that it doesn't have a very clear goal, but it's about to discover something. It's about to produce a new product, like a new phone that no one has seen before, right? Or produce a software for a problem that it's not known that it exists, right? So really innovative thieves, how do they work? And in that case, we see the opposite pattern. There, the horizontal, it doesn't matter. What we see is that in teams that are really excelling in innovation, much of the work is done by one individual. And the rest of the people are really just contributing to that person's work. That is, in innovative teams, you need a leader, the one that actually drives the story. And that person needs others to kind of help him kind of uh, uh, achieve his vision or her vision but it's really not about having equality and uniformity within the team setting. So really, this is for me, this was really fascinating because, you know, we always look for one-size-fits-all answers, right? And, uh, and this was kind of telling us, no, it's, it's not one-size-fits-all. You have to be really clear about what you're trying to achieve. In this case, are you trying to innovate or are you trying to solve a well-known problem that you know there's a solution or it's difficult? And the team you put together very much depends on the goal that you have there. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, it sounds like the second version that you're describing is very much like in my mind as you're describing that, I'm like, oh, that's Steve Jobs. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and of course, when it comes to Steve Jobs, now we're in the second part of the lab is to say, all right. How many people do you think that contributed to developing the iPhone? Maybe a thousand, mm-hmm. hundred, a thousand. And how many of them do you actually know about? <laughs> Him and Johnny Ive. That's it. Everyone knows Steve Jobs, yeah. right? And he totally walked away with the credit. Yep. Right. And so then kind of raises this deep question that actually the 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 fourth law discusses about is who gets the credit for the team's work? Mm-hmm. And the reason why this is difficult is because once the team's job is achieved, it's very difficult for an outsider to kind of decide who was the one who came up with the idea, who did the lion's share of the work, who fu- who found the financing to make that possible, and whose role was just simply make sure that the coffee is always warm and there are donuts on the table, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and at the end, one of those people will actually get promoted for the team's success. And uh, he or she may even get a Nobel Prize for if it's a scientific paper or whatever. And, and, and how did the committee decide who is that? Not knowing what really happened within the team. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is very important in science as well, because, you know, as I said, the leading papers now, the highest impact papers are team papers, yet only maximum three people can get the Nobel Prize. And typically from one paper, only one person gets it. So who is that person and how do we decide? So we went after that and we ended up building an algorithm that can look, for example, at the scientific paper with, say, 175 authors and say, Obviously, the 137th author will get the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. And this is actually a real example. So this is a Nobel Prize which had 170-something authors, and the 137th was the one who got the Nobel Prize for it. And, and what is really insightful, not the fact that we could do an algorithm to decide that, but how did the algorithm decide? And the algorithm decided by simply asking 
whose line of intellectual journey was this part of? That what did the authors of that paper publish before and after? And what did the community cite from their other work together with this one? Let me give a very specific example how this works. If you and I do, which we're doing right now, or kind of a podcast, you know, and let's say that this will be the most successful podcast out there, and I'm sure it will be, by the way, then the question is, whose credit is that? And frankly, it's yours, because this is your show, and I'm, uh. just, guest, uh, I'm just a guest on the show, and you have done many other shows in the same genre, and people will look and say, oh, this is actually the, the, uh, the show I need to listen, and it's the host role was actually to bring it together and create that environment that is really fun for me, and I learned a lot. Mm. However... If, and the reason why I don't get much credit that even though I was the guest on the show, I don't have any other activity in that space. However, if you and I write a network science paper, mm-hmm. and let's say you are the one who brings the idea, and you even do the lion's share of the work, I'm sorry to say it's going to be my paper. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be my paper because you have no track record in this area. Right. And therefore, there's nothing that the community co-site together with that particular work. So when a product of a team comes out, what the community typically does is that it looks whose line of work this was part of and gives the credit to that person, which comes back to the very idea that we talked at the beginning. Success is really about the community. Your success is about the community and not about you. When it comes to this, actually, um, really, the, su- the success is really assigned based on the perception of the community rather than what the real performance was within the team. And that has important consequences that you, one actually needs to use before we enter actually a team setting. So if you are invited to be part of a group to achieve something, you may ask yourself, what is my goal by participating in this team? If I feel this team has some really noble goals and I really want to be part of it, I don't care about the credit, but I think I want to make this help to, help to make this happen, then you should go for it. Absolutely. You're doing it because you have a good reason for that. However, if you're entering the team because you want to get credit for what you did there, then you have to say, will I get credit? And I can give you that answer even before you engage with the team, because you would need to look at what did you do before? What's your line of work and intellectual achievement? And does that team's work, if it's successful, fit into the line of work that you've been doing? And if it is, go for it, because the community will actually reward you for the team's credit. If, however, it's something totally tangential, like you join a paper of ours on network science, it will have no impact whatsoever on your career as a podcast host. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, let's let's finish this up with uh, the fifth law, like mm-hmm. which you basically say with persistent success comes at any time. And you said that when it comes to patterns of creativity, geniuses are no different than the rest of us. We too peak out early in our careers. We let our guard down once that wave of creativity wanes. Geniuses are not. We mostly conform to the same fundamental patterns. And you know, when I was thinking about that idea that it can come at any age, the question that came to my mind is, why do you have uh, situations where you know child prodigies who are or musicians don't end up becoming professional musicians. And then on the flip side of that, you have Morgan Freeman, who doesn't become Morgan Freeman until he's 50 years old. Because I remember talking to Anders Ericsson about this, and he said, yeah, he said often early, you know, crazy success and, and child genius is not a good predictor. 
of whether they'll be successful as adults. Absolutely. And these are all fabulous questions. And, you know, I just, uh, you know, I'm just beyond uh, 50 and I need to kind of ask myself, you know, should I be still doing science at all, given the fact that maybe my creative time is over? Why do we say that? Well, the reason we actually think that youth equals creativity is because there's lots of data in this space. And the data means that Genius researchers, people who actually sociologists and psychologists who study, uh, study the career of geniuses have observed and have documented very well that many major breakthroughs are really associated with relatively young individuals. And for example, let me take my profession of physics. I studied as a physicist and Einstein once claimed that if you as a physicist haven't made your breakthrough by the age of 30, you will never do so. Why did he say that? Well, he said so because he looked around in his environment at the people whom he admired, mostly the people who helped create quantum mechanics from Heisenberg to Borg and, uh, and uh, Dirac and so on. And he saw people who made their major breakthroughs, all of them in their kind of mid to late 20s, maybe early 30s. So, so, and indeed, so there is data to back up that major discoveries are associated with young people. But we, we actually went after this question, but looking not only at geniuses, but looking at all scientists. Because, you know, we were we curious, I was curious, what happens with me? Is my creating time over? According to Einstein, it is. And, and we, an, we analyzed, actually, the career of all sciences since, scientists since 1900, asking for each of them, when was the time, at what moment of their career, when they made their biggest discovery, and some of those bigger discoveries, a few of them were actually Nobel Prize winning, but the vast, 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 vast majority were just ordinary discoveries within the scientific world, except that that was the best for that particular scientist. And, and to our surprise, we saw that to some degree, Einstein in the genius literature is right, that even ordinary scientists tend to make their major discoveries in kind of relatively early within the career, kind of like 10, 15 years after they start their publishing career. So that's right. So I should probably hang up my coat as a scientist and start to continue writing books, right? Which is why we're talking yeah. today. But then, you know, we're data people. So we said, let's look a little bit more carefully and say, what's the, what's the reference data? And to make a long story short, we said, what's your productivity in function of age? And it turned out that when we looked at the productivity, how many papers you publish as a scientist in function of age, we thought, so exactly the same curve as we saw in the case of what's your likelihood of publishing your highest impact paper. In other terms, when we analyzed the data, it turned out that there is no age dependence whatsoever when it comes to creativity. Rather, people tend to be much more productive early in their career. First 10, 15 years of our career, we write most of our papers in that age group. And we slow down later in our life. We write fewer and fewer papers, partly because of health, family reasons, administrative reasons, and so on. But the analysis showed that every single product of a scientific career has exactly the same probability of being the highest impact work in that career. And this is generally true, not only in science, in, in other areas, that there's really no age dependence. Rather, every product that you do, every painting you pay, every show you actually record has the same chance of becoming your highest impact product. But 
Because young people tend to do more of these, and with age, kind of the ferocity waves, we're buying many more lottery tickets early on in our life, and we stop buying lottery tickets later in our life. And therefore, it appears as if we would not be creative. We're just simply not productive. We stop trying. So, so this was, of course, a huge relief for me because I still continue beyond 50 running a lab and I'm just as productive as I was in my 20s. And the data is indicating that I could still make a discovery that could overshadow anything that I ever did in my life. Yeah. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> so, I mean, this has been, you know, one of those conversations I think I'm going to have to go back to a dozen times just to to get everything you packed into it. So I have, I have two last questions for you. Uh, one, you know, at this point in your life, I, I'm assuming that you're tenured given your age and, and you know, given the fact you're publishing books outside of your, your career. How do you define your own success at this point? So that changes with uh, with age, obviously. So when I was in kind of in 20s and 30s, kind of my only measure of success was like, let's publish some papers that really have a major impact. In my early 30s, I managed to do that. I achieved that. Uh, the paper that we published about preferential attachment or the rich cat switcher phenomena was actually the decade's top 10 most cited papers in all sciences. So it was like, it was really, it was a major discovery and led to a new field of network science. Now, of course, the, my data indicates that if I carry on, I still have a probability to actually overshadow that work. And for that reason, I carry on. But priorities shift. And priorities shift in the sense that now I'm just as excited about helping my students and postdocs and my lab members succeed. So, for example, to be honest, I didn't take my mentoring role too seriously kind of 20 years ago. It just came with my job. Now I pay much more attention to to let other people succeed. I do so partly because my thinking has changed. And I also do so because I understand that... At this point of my life, my legacy is determined not only by things that I did, but also what the people who worked with me will do, right? So so I have a much longer perspective. And with that, the impact measures change, right? So it's not anymore my impact measure to publish yet 10 more papers, right? I tell my students, I don't need papers. I only need discoveries at this age of my life. But it's just as exciting for me when my former students and postdocs go out and publish a paper that is featured on the cover of Nature or Science, uh, because that I feel it's also my achievement. Yeah. So I did realize I forgot to ask you about one thing. We didn't talk about it. How do you calculate the Q factor that you mentioned earlier? Is there a way to actually calculate it? Yes. So let's talk about what the Q factor is, right? So yeah. one of the things that the fact that each project has exactly the same probability of being the most successful of your life, uh, that actually led to a mathematical model of how creativity works. And the way this works really is that every project that you start is like a random number. You pick a random number from a hat, and you and I have access to the same hat. So we pick a random number from that. And that could be one or six, throw a dice, right? Does It's like it's totally random. And, and then you bring your knowledge and expertise on that, and that's your Q factor, and turn that idea into a product. If you're a scientist, it could be a paper. If you are a podcast host, it could be actually a, a, a show, uh, or it could be a book if you're a writer, whatever that is. And then you look at the success or the impact of that product, like how many citations you got, how many people bought it, and so on. And what we find is that the impact of that is nothing but that random number that you picked from the hat 
times the, your Q factor. That is, your Q factor is a number that characterizes your ability to take a random idea and to turn into an impactful product. Now, if you have a low Q factor, even if you throw a six with the dice, it's not going to be a high impact product because you don't have, you don't know what to do with that, right? So effectively, you're mm-hmm. not accelerating that idea very far. However, if you have a high Q factor, you could still pick a low number, random number, better, pick a bad idea and not to be very successful with it. But in the moment you hit across by chance through that great idea that the high random number times your high Q factor becomes a breakthrough. And that's exactly what we see in the case of successful individuals. It's not that every project they do succeed, but rather what we see is that they have lots of crappy projects in their career, so does Steve Jobs. But when they hit across the right idea, they have an ability to turn that one into a major success. And can we measure a Q factor? Yes. We were able to measure the Q factor for scientists from the, relatively early in their career. And what we learned actually from that is that the Q factor, and that was really the most shocking aspect of the story, it doesn't change throughout our career, which was totally unexpected. That when I start my career as a scientist, the f- first few papers define my Q factor, and it, that Q factor will stay with me till retirement. And that was so unexpected because I thought that I'm becoming a better and better scientist, a better and better communicator. So I'm so much better than I was 20 or 30 years ago. Yet the data was indicating that my Q factor has not really changed. And I'm still part of the same random process that I'm picking these random ideas and turning them into papers of very different impact uh, by multiplying it with my uh, Q factor. And we can measure Q factor in other areas as well. We were we recently just measured the Q factor, and we even have an app out there that you can play with QFactor.com that we're, we're, we're able to measure the Q factor for social media. That is how well you are engaging with your audience, that are your tweets retweeted or not. That's really up to your Q factor, your ability to turn your ideas, which are kind of coming randomly to you, into messages that the community is really appreciating, and they find it worthwhile to retweet it or like it. Mm. Wow. Uh, well, I have one last question, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, the, long, the last message you say, right? Mm. So I actually think that, uh, you know, first of all, what I would like to kind of emphasize is that even though the book is called The Formula, there's not a single formula in it. Actually, each part, and our five parts, have their own formulas behind them, number one. And the reason why that is important is because, really, there, there are different stages of your career and different type of careers and different laws apply to you. In the same way that when you are flying, the, the aerodynamics matters for you. When you are walking, Newton's mechanics matters for you, and you shouldn't mix the two of them up. The same way different laws apply in different parts of your career. Number one, but I think that if one message should be taken away from that, and the one that I really think is the most important for me, uh, uh, and I hope I articulate it well, is that really your performance is about you, but your success is about us. And if you internalize that, that will be a game changer. Mm. Wow. 
Um, well, I can't thank you enough to for taking the time to join us at, and uh, share your story and your insights with the listeners. This has been phenomenal. Like I, you know, you're making my head hurt in the best way possible. And I read the book, so I was kind of I, I just I'm really blown away. And uh, I can't thank you enough. So, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Well, uh, we do have a web page, but if you just simple go Google my name, Barabashi. B-A-R-A-B-A-S-I or look at barabashi.com or just Google the formula, you will find lots of resources, including our website on the book. And hopefully you can build on that and, you know, see which of the laws apply to you and how you can apply it. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. 
Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.